immortal yet paraphrased words of Albus Dumbledore. Hope can be found even in the darkest of times if one only remembers to turn on the light. Hello, 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 and welcome back once again to the wonderful world of Turn On The Light. I am your host, Louise. Um, I've noticed a few new listeners of the show over the past couple of weeks, um, so I thought I'd just take this opportunity to first of all say thank you very much for listening and welcome, um, and just give a quick recap of who I am um, and what we're all about here at Turn On The Light. Um, So my name is Louise Cordry. Uh, I have a degree in um, animal biology um, and I've worked in many jobs and many different settings um, over my over my short time on this earth. Um, but the most notable conservation related ones um, have been working with the IIs at Durrell Wildlife Conservation Trust um, or Jersey Zoo um, on Jersey and the Channel Islands. Um, I've also worked as an assistant ecologist in Suffolk in the UK. Um, and I've worked um, with a couple of NGOs on conservation projects in Madagascar and in Indonesia. Um So I returned to the UK from Indonesia and sank into charity work. Um, I'm currently working for an animal welfare charity based in London, which I really love. Obviously, I love animals. I've got my little dog, Chewy, who sat right beside me. There we go. Um, Yeah, super important stuff. Um, You know, where I work, do international work as well. Um, All amazing work and, and really, really important and something that I do feel passionate about. But I then felt disconnected from the world of conservation, which is my ultimate passion and my number one love. Um, so I decided to to start this podcast um, to reconnect with that world with inspiration from Jesse Panazzolo of Lonely Conservationists, um, who I've mentioned in a few episodes um, and I interviewed Jesse in the very first episode of this podcast. Um, it's basically an online community of like-minded um, conservationists um, who felt lonely in the industry and maybe were sort of struggling um mental health wise or with getting you know paid work and sort of things like that um so it's this amazing community that jesse's built um from the ground up off her own back um and it's growing and it's thriving and it's becoming even more amazing every single day um so do check them out they're at lonely conservationists um on the old instagram at lonely conserve on twitter um lonelyconservationists.com where all of the blog posts and all of the resources um to different bits and bobs that Jesse puts up on there. They've also got a YouTube channel now as well, um, Lonely Conversationists. <laughs> um, a few videos on there discussing, again, things like mental health and conservation, and most recently, um, race and conservation and being black in the field. Um, really interesting stuff. I've just ordered a T-shirt from them. I'm very excited for that to come. Um, yeah, so go go check those guys out. Who was sort of, she gave me the. Um, I guess the self-belief and the strength to just go for it and just do this podcast. Um, yeah, so that's sort of a little bit of background. Um, and the basic idea of Turn on the Light um, is to spread positive conservation stories that are maybe missing from the mainstream narrative. Um, and obviously finding that balance by not minimising the all too real challenges that the natural world faces, um, but to provide hope still for people. Um, and I think a lovely little quote um that i uh that i found when list- when watching eye of the pangolin um a chap on there who who was doing some conservation work with pangolins he said to be a conservationist is to be an optimist um, and i think that's so true and words to to live by and words that i live by here at, at turn on light um and i also try and make it accessible for everyone um and to those uh who perhaps wouldn't usually stumble on conservation stories in their everyday um so you know casual conversational stories to share the love of the natural world share my love of the natural world um and to allow other people to to do the same and to sort of spark that interest and and um and passion in other people anyway that's enough about me (laughs) and enough about the background of the podcast um yeah so usually at the top of each episode i share a good news story or stories from the past couple of weeks um, last time I told you how pangolin scales were now sort of off the menu, if you like, the uh, official list of medicinal um, ingredients in China. Um, so this time I am here to tell you some even more good news about the pangolin, um, that Tem- Temminx pangolins 
um, in South Africa have now returned to a region where they were once extinct. So they were extinct from this place in South Africa and now these guys are back. Woohoo! So pangolins themselves, they're one of the world's most trafficked animals, um, despite being protected under CITES, um, which I explained about CITES last time, worldwide protection um, on, on um, an, excuse me, on animal trade. Um, so this pangolin is one of a species of eight species of pangolins worldwide, um, four in Africa and four in Asia, um, and was considered ecologically extinct across um, KwaZulu-Natal province in South Africa um, for the past like 30 to 40 years. Um, so ecologically extinct, it means that whilst there may be, you know, a few individuals present in an area, they no longer significantly interact with other species. Um, so it's basically as if they're not there. Um, yeah, so thanks to a soft release program by the African Pangolin Working Group, these scaly little anheaters are back in the region. So soft release uh, means that they undergo extensive rehabilitation and they are very, very slowly introduced to the area with little walks um, with their sort of rehabilitation keepers. Um, and that can take days or weeks, depending on their response um, to the area. And then once they are released, they are GPS tracked and they have regular checkups, regular weight checks, regular medicals. Um, yeah, because pangolins are a very, very sensitive species. They get very stressed very easily. So it's not um, an easy thing to re-release um, a pangolin in, into the wild. Um, I mean, it's not an easy thing, full stop, with any species, but these guys are particularly susceptible to stress. Um, so this soft release program has been successful. And now these guys are thriving in the wild in KwaZulu-Natal province in South Africa. Now, I'll leave it there in terms of detail, as I will be discussing pangolins in much, much more detail um, in a subsequent episode, which is going to be exciting stuff. Now, to introduce this episode's species in the spotlight. This saltwater-loving, super-cute furry pal is one of my favourite marine mammal species. You guessed it, it is the sea otter. So now we're back to just the one species in the spotlight this week. I feel like I can go into a lot more detail um, with these guys, which I am about to do. Um, I, I worry in episodes where I talk about like a, a certain area or multiple species, I don't get the chance for as much intricate details. Um, I also try and sort of keep episodes to an hour or so long, commute friendly, I say. Um, yeah, but that's enough about my internal neuroses. I'm sure you don't need to, to hear that bit. Anyway, so the sea otter... <laughs> Enhydra lutris, the Latin name. They are an aquatic member of the weasel family, the mustelids. In fact, they are the heaviest member of the mustelid family, reaching up to weights of about 45 kilograms, which is like the weight of a teenager or a teeny adult, so they can get pretty, pretty big. Um, but despite that, they're still the smallest marine mammal. Yeah. So these guys are found around the coast of the northern and eastern North Pacific Ocean all the way from northern Japan, the Kuril Islands between Japan and Russia, Kamchatka Peninsula, which is the Russian Far East, um, across the Aleutian Islands between Russia and Alaska, and along the North American coast, all the way down past Mexico, uh, sorry, past California to Mexico. Um, now, three subspecies exist in these different geographic regions. Enhydra lutris nariz, the southern sea otter, or the Californian sea otter, Enhydra lutris kenyoni, which is the northern Alaska Washington coast uh, sea otter. And then Enhydra lutris lutris, which is the Russian sea otters um, who exist on the Pacific coast of Russia and Japan. So those three subspecies exist within the Enhydra lutris species of sea otter. Now, these guys, they're entirely capable of living exclusively in the ocean, um, but sometimes they will come ashore to sleep or to have a little rest. Um, and of course, we, we, we do know that they do also sleep um, in the water, um, floating on their backs most of the time. A delightful image that I'm sure we have all seen of the little sea otter babies. Um, so they often gather in groups to do that um, and hold their little handies. Um, and they do 
also float in sort of seaweed kelp forests to have some kind of anchor point. Um, and kelp forests are where they, they like to hang out and where they like to live um, anyway, which we'll come on to a little bit more detail in a bit. Um, so sea otters, they have webbed feet, water-repellent fur and nostrils and ears that close in the water. So they could not be better adapted for marine life, which is just as well as they love to eat many marine invertebrates, such as sea urchins, mollusks, crustaceans and even some little fish. Now, we've talked before in previous episodes about um, keystone species and ecosystem engineers, and sea otters are a classic example of this. Um, keystone species means that their presence has a disproportionately large effect on its natural environment compared to the actual animal size and the numbers that it exists in. So what these guys do, they keep the benthic herbivores in check. Um, benthic, again, as I said last time, is just the seafloor. Um, and benthic herbivores are things like sea urchins. So this, in turn, will protect kelp from being overforaged by the sea urchins, um, creating what is known as urchin barrens when the sea urchins are given the chance to, to overfeed on kelp. And without these forests, profound cascade effects occur to marine ecosystems. So cascade effects are exactly what they sound like, um, negative effects cascading down from an original event um, at the top of the food chain cascading down and eventually um, can trigger secondary extinctions. Um, so, you know, if the extinction of a key species happened, like like sea otters, um, it will trigger events that could lead to secondary extinctions um, of things that feed and live within the kelp forests. Um, so bad, bad stuff. Um, of course, kelp forests um, themselves are incredibly important. They act as CO2 sinks. Um, and it's even thought um, that sea otters may even mitigate climate change effects by the cascading trophic influence that they have down the food chain um, by keeping these kelp forests uh, intact and healthy. Uh, sea otters are also really good in estuaries um, as they keep the eelgrass healthy. Um, so same idea, but just different, different uh, species. Um, so they keep the eelgrass healthy by eating crabs, and that allows sea slugs to thrive, which would otherwise be overpredated by crabs. Um, the sea slugs eat algae that would coat and smother the eelgrass, um, and fish need that for food and shelter, and again, CO2 sink. Um, and you can see how all of these things are intrinsically interlinked, and if you take one cog um, out of that machine, if you like, it all just falls apart. So, what happened to such important critters as sea otters for them to feature here as a conservation success story? I'll tell you. So early in the 18th century, sea otters were relentlessly hunted for their pelts. Not incredibly surprising, sadly. <laughs> so large-scale commercial hunting meant that despite having once been very abundant in a wide arc across the North Pacific, they were driven almost to extinction. In 1741, a period known as the Great Hunt began. Don't know what was great about it. But this would continue for around another 100 years. Um, and it's estimated that within that time, their population fell from around 300,000 to between just 1,000 and 2,000 individuals globally. Um, and this was in 1911. So... They also lived in a fraction of their historic range in the most remote and inaccessible places. So after this decimation of the species happened, um, international bans were placed on hunting um, and reintroduction programmes into previous populated areas have contributed to their numbers rebounding. Um, so I'll talk briefly about each area where they're found. Um, and then at the end there, I will focus in depth on California and the Monterey Bay Aquarium Recovery Programme. So, starting off in Russia, after the Great Hunt, there was only around 750 individuals left um, around the Russian regions um, where sea otters are found. As of 2004, they have repopulated all former habitat areas. Yahoo! This is thanks to large-scale and long-term protection, enlargement of their range, and human immigration from the islands around which they exist, those Kuril Islands, the Kamchatka Islands. So, numbers are now estimated at around 27,000 in this region. Amazing. Amazing, amazing stuff. Next, we move on to Alaska and the Aleutian Islands. Um, now, this population was actually only discovered in the 1930s, um, so they were fairly, doing fairly 
all right. And a very successful sanctuary was was created on Amchitka um, Island. So this uh, sea otter population here actually grew to outstrip their prey. Um, so they were doing incredibly well there. However, in the mid-1960s, Amchitka Island was used for nuclear testing, which is not good for anyone. Um, yeah, so their numbers fell. Um, and obviously this, this nuclear testing uh, killed a lot of sea otters. Um, so by 1968, the U.S. Atomic Energy Commission agreed to relocate sea otters to other parts of the coast where they're not going to be bombing. So between the 1960s and 70s, 700 sea otters were transplanted um, to further down the coast away from away from this bombing site. And survival increased um, as scientists gained more and more knowledge on safe transport. Um, and obviously that now contributes to conservation efforts today where they may have to be translocated and such. So an important event um, to have happened. And by 1973, the population was thought to be between 100,000 and 125,000. Um, so that's their, their population in the 70s. So now moving on to... Um, the one that I really want to talk about, where the population got the absolute lowest. Um, so this southern population of sea otter. Um, so that is the Enhydra lutris neris, as I mentioned at the beginning there. The southern sea otter or the Californian sea otter. So the only location where they're found in significant numbers is California, hence the name. Um, and in the early 1900s, along the coast, numbers were as low as 50 individuals. They're incredibly close to this sub species being wiped out. Um, the 50 individuals were stumbled upon by accident almost um, when people were testing out a telescope along the coast, which is, um, yeah, very incredibly lucky for these guys. Um, so from that point, conservation efforts were began by two ladies called Julia Platt and Margaret Wentworth Owings. Um, environmentalists of the 1900s, um, and Margaret actually founded and was the first president of Friends of the Sea Otter. Um, and the group began to expand its range and, and grow in population from the protection and efforts that these guys put in. Now, to further aid sea otter populations in the California area, in 1984, Monterey Bay Aquarium began its Sea Otter Research and Conservation Programme. This is an incredibly important programme, as it's the only one in the world that rescues and rehabilitates sea otter pups with the aim of returning them to the wild. To survive in the wild, pups need 24-hour care from their mothers. Um, and just natural things that happen, such as during stormy weather, pups can become separated from their mothers, which would be disastrous um, if the aquarium didn't step in. So when a stranding like this is reported, aquarium biologists will endeavour first and foremost to try and reunite this pup with their mum. If that's not possible, the pup is brought to the aquarium where staff, volunteers and, crucially, non-releasable sea otter females will act as surrogate mums uh, so the pups can eventually be released back into the wild. And interestingly, this is a fun fact, not in the fun fact section, but anyway, I make the rules. <laughs> it's my show. Um, yeah, so non-releasable females acting as surrogates. This is behaviour that has been seen in the wild from wild female sea otters. If they come across an orphaned pup, um, then they do tend to nurse them. They do tend um, to, to raise them. So it's, you know, amazing behaviour that we can also sort of take advantage of in captive scenarios. Um, so, yes, these pups are reared by surrogate mothers, whether that be another sea otter or volunteers and staff. Um, they're taught to swim in supervised swims actually out in Monterey Bay. They're taught to dive for food, crack open shellfish with the rock tools, as I'm sure many people have seen. They float on their, the otters float on their backs and they have the little bit of food on their belly and a rock and bash away at it. Um, so they're taught all these behaviours of wild otters that they will need um, to survive after release. Um, and this is a process uh, that goes on for maybe sort of six, seven, seven or so months. Um, and during this time, also radio transmitters are implanted into the pup's abdomen um, to make sure that they can be tracked and monitored when they're out on their own. So as I say, at around six to seven months, the surrogate mums will leave the pup and return to shore alone when out on a swim. Um, and then the pup will, will go on to live its happy life. Hopefully that's the plan. That's um, what should happen. Um, 
And we know, thanks to a study in 2019, released in September 2019, it confirmed that the Monterey Bay Aquarium surrogate-reared sea otters have helped restore the threatened California population. Scientists estimate that the surrogate-raised otters and their offspring account for more than half of the sea otter population growth over the past 15 years. Which is incredible that it's contributed so much um, to, to these species' survival. Um, this was a study published in Oryx, the International Journal of Conservation. Um, authors, the lead author, Carl Mayer, um, and other authors, Tim Tinker and Terry Nicholson. Um, and a nice little quote um, from Dr. Kyle Van Houten, who is the chief scientist at the Monterey Bay Aquarium, said that we are starting to see the extensive and positive impacts of a growing and healthy sea otter population. Of course, that there is referring to those ecosystem benefits that I spoke about earlier in the episode. Um, and it also sort of reiterates how this is not a quick or easy process. You know, this has been going since 1984 and they're now really starting to see these wonderful, wonderful impacts. Um, Yep, and so, drumroll please, do, 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 do. numbers of the Californian sea otter population are now estimated to be at 3,000. So from 50, lowers that up to 3,000, which is cracking stuff and wonderful, wonderful news. Now I think it is worth noting to, to just sort of take this opportunity to say that the California population is increasing at slower rates than others um, and their populations are still nowhere near the level of their what their pre-hunted populations were at um, which is around 16,000 um, so they've got a little way to go still so they still need that conservation they still need that protection that legal protection which is in place worldwide um, and efforts from amazing places like the Monterey Bay Aquarium um, really helping these guys out and um, they also appear to be more susceptible to disease um, which is probably due to the population bottleneck that they went through when numbers were as low as 50. Um, so a population bottleneck means a drastic and significant decrease in a population um, and subsequently a decrease in the size of the gene pool and the genetic variation that you see. Um, imagine the neck of a bottle and literally like a population being squeezed through that neck. <laughs> um, yeah, so there's been a reduction in, in genetic diversity um, in these guys and as we know that can mean a loss in fitness and increased susceptibility to disease um, additionally i wanted to take this this moment as well to say that in the aleutian islands we have sadly seen declines in populations recently um, so earlier i said that their numbers were around a hundred thousand um, and that went down to six thousand um, in the 1990s now, it's not really known exactly why. One thought is that orca predation um, increased due to lack of orcas having their usual larger prey, like seals and such. Um, but that is a controversial theory, and there's no actual evidence to back that up. Um, so I wanted to mention it, but don't put any stock into it because there's not anything definitive to say that's actually what's happened. Um, a big factor in the declines um, around Alaska is the 1989 Exxon Valdez oil spill. Um, sadly, in this event, few otters were rescued. Um, around a thousand carcasses were actually found, um, but numbers of, of dead otters were, were thought to be much larger than that. Th around 350 were rescued, um, rehabilitated, given activated charcoal to really help if they'd swallow loads of oil. They were cleaned regularly um, and some were re-released, but sadly, few survived. This did give us more knowledge on how to treat oiled otters um so i guess that's the only positive that could have possibly come out of that situation um but thankfully since since this this big event and since numbers got down to six thousand, today they have bounced back yet again um and thankfully there are around seventy three thousand otters in alaska um currently but obviously, due to all of the above reasons and continued human threats like oil spills, like poaching that happens to any species that has been historically hunted despite legal protections, uh, like conflicts with, with fisheries and getting tangled in fishing gear, um, they are still listed as endangered. Um, and as I said, they still do need those efforts from us um, to help them survive and thrive. Um, 
but having said that again, sort of going back to the positivity, um, the worldwide population growth and successful efforts from conservation organisations, it shows that it is possible to continue to maintain and grow sea otter populations, which I hope we will see for many, many years to come. And it's definitely also worth noting that the bounce back of populations and the recovery of the species is still considered as one of the greatest successes in marine conservation. Okay, now it's time for fun facts. Fun fact number one. The sea otter's luxurious fur is the densest in the whole animal kingdom. Fun fact number two. They sleep in single-sex groups called rafts. As mentioned, they will sleep floating on their back in the sea um, in these big groups, um, typically containing 10 to 100 individuals. And they will hold hands when they do this to stop them floating away from each other. Fun fact number three. The largest raft ever seen contained 2,000 otters. Can you imagine coming across that? Just amazing. So fuzzy. And fun fact number four. Otters use tools. As mentioned before, they will use rocks to smash open their snails, their crabs, their mussels, all the goodies that they want to eat. Um, This is just incredible, as only a handful of non-primate species are known to do this. Um, And you may have seen those amazingly cute videos on YouTube and the like um, of them juggling with rocks. This is known as recreational juggling, and it's a way of learning to manipulate their tools. They're just, they're just so cute. They just get better, you know? Okay, that's, that's my fun facts. Um, now to introduce my special guest for today. Today we have the pleasure of speaking with Leonie Dickerhoff, the founder of the Siren Project, a network for and of female ocean conservationists. She originally hails from Germany, where she spent her formative years before moving to California to complete her Bachelor of Science in Marine Science and then on to Washington to undertake her Master's in Marine Affairs. I'm excited to welcome her to the podcast today to talk about her love for the marine world and the inspiring and uplifting network that she has created. Okay, so hi Leonie, how's it going? Thank you for taking the time to talk to me. <laughs> well, thank you so much for having me. I'm really excited. Good, good. I'm glad to hear that. Um, so I mentioned in your little intro that you founded the Siren Project, which connects female ocean conservationists from all over the world. Um, but I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit about where you are currently. For sure. So right now I'm in Germany. I'm actually, I feel like so many of us, like marine biologists or conservationists, I'm just hanging out at my parents' house because I don't have a place of my own. Um, so yeah, I'm in southern Germany, really close to the mountains, the ocean's nowhere close. <laughs> I've actually been enjoying it, just taking it really slow, and yeah, actually been using this time to work on the Siren Project. Yeah, which is definitely a massive silver lining um, of this whole thing. Um, for sure. Definitely for us as well, for the audience who get to see all the wonderful stories. Um, do you have any sort of indication of when you'll be able to like jet off again or is it all just up in the air? Well, it's kind of hard because I was supposed to be in the Maldives. So I had a new job lined up and I was supposed to be back there um, at the beginning of March. And that's when everything kind of collapsed and shut down. Yeah. So I feel like the tourist industry is being hit really hard. So right now the estimate is July 1st, but who knows if that's actually going to happen. And I just feel like even though like resorts might start to open again, I just don't know what funding will be like. Like, is there still funding to bring mm. on a marine biologist, or is funding just so tight right now? Which I understand. Yeah. They're like, all right, this is not essential. Let's kind of hold off. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm still shooting for getting out of Germany July first, but I'm really not sure. Fingers crossed for you. <laughs> It'll be interesting to see how a lack of tourism will have impacted the marine life over there, though, for sure. 100%. I have a lot of the girls actually on the Siren Project who are still in the Maldives because they're taking care of corals or turtles. Mm-hmm. They still have work there. But unfortunately, kind of how it's happening all around the world, it's being another really warm year, so everybody's reporting some bleaching. So I'm pretty sure if I get to go, um, that's going to be 
a sad sight seeing like mm-hmm. a lot of bleached corals. But mm-hmm. on a good note, I've seen around all of the resorts where there's not a lot of tourists, there's been bigger populations of like baby black tip sharks, for example, bigger schools of fish. So it's really nice to see that the wetlands really does come close to the islands as soon mm-hmm. as there's not so much going on anymore. So that's nice. Definitely. They've been allowed a little bit of time and space to bounce back a bit. Yes. So you mentioned, or we've both mentioned uh, um, the Siren Project, um, which is how we first connected um, on the wonderful platform that is Instagram. Um, And I had the chance to share my story through the project, um, which I was absolutely honoured to do. So thank you very much for that. Um, No, I loved it. It, It's just, it's so nice. This project wouldn't exist without people like yourself, like telling a personal story like this really is opening up and kind of being vulnerable to the outside world. And I loved it. And your story is so inspirational. It kind of really tells the ups and downs of conservation. And I loved it. So thank you. Oh, thank you. You make me blush. (laughs) (laughs) And that's it. Like, that's the amazing collaborative nature of all aspects of conservation, isn't it? Because I I wouldn't be able to do what I'm doing without people like you. So it's this reciprocal, lovely thing (laughs) that we've got going on. Um, Yes, I was wondering if you could tell listeners a little bit more about the project and its birth and how it's flourishing. Yeah, Um, so I guess it was first out of just frustration in the end. So I actually, so I'm just going to give you a little bit of a backstory, I guess, Mm -hmm. to it. Please do. Um, So I had a job in the Maldives and I was just not really happy with my position there. So I ended up quitting. So I came back to Germany, so back to my parents' house and I was like, perfect time I'm going to be home around Christmas I haven't spent Christmas with my parents in over three years so it's going to be perfect and I was like I'm just going to be home for maybe two months and then I'm going to jet off again to somewhere else so I was home and then January came around and I was applying for all of these jobs and as most people know it's just so difficult getting a paid position in conservation um, so I was getting a little frustrated and then finally I got another job in the Maldives at the marine biologist in the end and I was really excited for it and I was supposed to be there in March or beginning of March well and then everything kind of shut down and I was like all right well again I'm stuck in my parents house I got nowhere to go I literally don't have a euro in my pocket because I've been unemployed for so long now so I was like I was just still frustrated. It's like, it's mm-hmm. hard to find jobs. It's just hard to get connected in the field. Like connections are so important. And one of my best friends who actually also worked with me in the Maldives, she has her PhD. She's a dive master. She has a lot of volunteer experience, work experience. And she was going through the same thing. Like she couldn't find a paid job forever. We were always sending each other job, um, uh, job offers like back and forth. And we just, we were both frustrated. And one day I was like, all right, I'm so broke. I'm going to go play the lottery. (laughs) And I don't even know what I was thinking because nobody ever wins. I mean, people do, but of course I wouldn't. So I played it. Of course I didn't win anything. (laughs) But I was just kind of frustrated, wanted to blow up some steam. So I was like, I'm just going to go for this really nice long walk and just kind of become one with my thoughts and just sort things out. And so as I was walking, I was just listening to different podcasts. And I was like, there's so many girls or so many people in general, but so many women out there in conservation, in ocean conservation, who are kind of all going through the same problem, either looking for internships or paid positions. And I was like, I want to create something where we can connect, where we can support each other, where we can kind of show them that they're not the only ones out there in the end, but then also to uplift each other. So I was like, what could I do without having any money, but trying to connect people and like have a positive impact in the end. So I just kind of brainstormed a little. I was like, all right, I'm just going to start an Instagram. I'm going to see if people want to tell their story in the end. So this kind of shows that there's conservation all around the world. It shows the different backgrounds that we have in conservation. And I think it's so important. And that's really something I'm trying to emphasize with the Siren Project is that it's not about or not all about science like science is so important to have a foundation but in the end the people who actually bring it out to the public that's storytellers that's artists that's photographers videographers so i really wanted to make sure that this wasn't just about science this really was about everybody who loves the ocean and wants to do something positive 
Yeah. And then, yeah, I just kind of created this Instagram and created a website. Didn't really know what was going to go. I was like, I'm just going to go with flow, see if people want to tell their stories. So I started reaching out. I was like, I'm just going to blind Instagram message people, like looking at the Instagram account. I was like, oh, you look like you care about the ocean. So I'll just <laughs> message you, basically. And then I just had a couple of friends I went to school with. And I was like, all right, you guys have to help me out. I started this project. So do you want to tell your story? And I've been mind blown how open people are to just yeah, replying to a stranger and being like, sure, I'll, I'll help you out. You have zero followers, but I'll tell you my story. <laughs> that was really, yeah, heartwarming. And then through that, I feel like I've gotten so connected and I've just also realized truly how big a community is out there and how many podcasts are out there, like seeing how many awesome conservation podcasts like yourself. Um, that, for example, I'm the lonely conservationist. Just there's so many cool mm-hmm. resources out there which I had no idea about. Um, so this has been an incredible journey. It's only been like two and a half months or almost three months now, and I've been mind blown already. I've learned so much. That's amazing. I think that's so so true what you say there about that that storytelling aspect um and everybody with a conservation message um has something to shout from the rooftops and to give them a platform to do that is is an excellent thing to be doing um and i know people always sort of say about the the pitfalls and maybe the negatives of social media and stuff like that but you're just going to show that it can be used in such a positive way um for people to tell their stories um and I, I kind of, yeah, I wondered if you could tell us sort of like a little bit of your origin story of how you loved the ocean without ever having been in one. I really liked that little bit <laughs> of your story. Yes. Yeah, I feel like, I guess I have a little bit of a different story. So I wasn't raised by the ocean whatsoever. So I was raised in southern Germany, which is really close by the Alps. And my parents love the outdoors. So I grew up camping and hiking and mountain biking, what what a kayaking, like all those things. And I remember, um, so I feel like when it was like maybe three months old, I think we went to the North Sea, but of course I didn't remember any of that, but I know I ate more sand than I took in. <laughs> I guess I took in a lot of the beach, yeah. <laughs> but not necessarily mentally. Um, but then after that, like we never went back and I was so jealous of all of my friends. Like during summer break, Germans, love to go to Italy or Spain to go to the beach like that's what Germans do everybody goes to the ocean somewhere and of course my family we never went so we're like let's go to Switzerland let's go to Austria let's go to France but to the Alps so it's like <laughs> every time we never made it to the ocean and I remember this one time I think it was maybe 13 I think and we went to France of course again to the mountains but one day, my parents were like, all right, we'll go to Monaco, and we'll go check out the Jacques Cousteau Museum. It's like, oh, my God. We go to Monaco, Fritzlau, which was, like, a beautiful city to this day. I've never been back, but it's been, like, one of the most memorable cities in my life. Um, but then also seeing the ocean, I remember driving up and just, like, seeing this huge, vast balloon. I said, this is incredible. And then we went to the museum, and I hated it. No, no. <laughs> There were all of these fish, and they were so pretty, but they were all in these small tanks. There was nothing in the tanks, which is swimming in circles. And I, re- I started crying. I was like, this is so depressing. I was like, why would anybody have these beautiful animals swim in tanks without anything that looks close to their home that resembles mm-hmm. like their natural environment? So I remember I didn't actually want to go to the entire museum. I was like, I'm going to go outside. Like, I don't, I don't want to see this. So we left. So I guess my first impression off the ocean or ocean critters like wasn't that great. You could say like I for sure didn't fall in love with it because I was so sad about it. Um, so then we went home and I didn't really think about the ocean much more. And I remember when I was 16 or 17, my dad brought me a book and it's written by Frank Schetzing. I think he's a German author. And the book is called The Swarm. And it's a fictional book, but he did a lot of really good research. Like in this book, he talks about um, research that was done with dolphins, like especially in the American military. But in the end, the story is about a marine biologist up in Vancouver, Canada. And he basically explores orca populations. He looks at how climate change um, 
keeps warming up the ocean and with that comes like different bacteria, different viruses, methane gets released and tsunamis and all that. So it was just like this fascinating story. And within that, he was saying that the ocean was less explored than the moon. I was like, I was mind blown by that statement. I was like, what? And then kind of just from reading that book, I was so fascinated with all the things ocean. Even, and still, I didn't go to the ocean, but I was just like, this is what I want to study. Like, there's, there are so many cool things. I want to study the ocean. So then when I was done with high school, I took like half a year off, just kind of hanging out and working a couple of small jobs here and there. And then I applied for programs overseas, so I didn't apply in Germany. So I applied in California and actually got in. So I was like, all right, moving to California. I'm studying marine science. And that's kind of where it all started, I guess. So moving to California, the university was like right by the beach. So it's really nice actually sitting by the beach, like watching a sunset or seeing the whales migrate. So it's been, that was a really cool time. But then as I was there, I realized that science or research wasn't particularly what I was good at. I was never good at math. I was not good in chemistry, physics, a lot of the important parts, I guess, of true science. And there was this internship I really wanted, and I was like, all right, I'm going to apply for it. I'm going to get it. And it was about kind of related with glaciology, because that's really what I wanted to do. I wanted to do glaciology or kind of research oil drilling and how Mm -hmm. you can prevent basically oil spills, how to clean up oil spills, but especially in the Arctic. So I went to this interview, and within, I think it was like not even five minutes, Two professors set me down. They're like, all right, we well, looked at your grades. What you want to do is great, but you'll never achieve it. Like, you're not good at no. math. You're not good at physics. You're not good at chemistry. And those are all the things you'll need to do anything with glaciology or with, like, the basically around oil drilling. And I was like, what? And I remember being heartbroken. I was like, why did I even come here? Why am I studying marine science if I can't do what I want to do? So I went home and I was like, all right, what now? And I feel like it took me a while to kind of figure out what I wanted. But during that time, the nice thing was that I was kind of, I guess it drew me a little bit away from the ocean, but it drew me towards an outdoor education organization on campus. And that organization was all about building community, making sure that people, um, basically of all genders, ethnicities, financial backgrounds, basically had a place to come to and experience the outdoors. And so I really heavily got involved with them. We took people sea kayaking and backpacking. And I really loved sharing my passion for the outdoors with them, sharing my knowledge about the ocean or plants and just getting people like see them build a connection. And I feel like that kind of was the starting point of everything I did after. Like I always really wanted to share my knowledge and basically create a community and make sure people care about the natural environment. So as I came closer to finishing my bachelor, I was like, all right, I don't, obviously I'm not going to go into science. I want to go into policy rather, and hopefully, um, yeah, changing policies regarding ocean management, ocean sustainability. So I moved to Washington state in the U S um, got my master's in marine affairs, which is like, policy, law, management, those kinds of things. And yeah, I guess that's my, that's my story. (laughs) In a nutshell. I love that. Yeah. (laughs) You're so true that like, yeah, conservation can't happen in a vacuum and you need those, the policy change and the politics all around it as well. You need it to all work in symbiosis um, together, don't you? Um, And I love that, like that little quote on your website, which says, um, I think it is a common misconception that in order to be a conservationist, you need to be a scientist. And all credits to the Leonie Dickerhoff. <laughs> Not my words. <laughs> um, yeah, and no, I just I love that you are totally about everyone and anyone getting passionate and involved in conservation. Um, and I sort of try and reflect that as well and try and hope that this podcast remains accessible to everyone and like really conversational and getting people passionate about about animals and, and the natural world. Um, 
can be, yeah, I love how there's such a variety of women on your platform from all sorts of walks of life. Um, and recently I loved the mothers that have shared their story as well. Um, like I, teaching the next generation. Blew my mind too, yeah. it was so sweet. I know there was this one girl like Sydney who was the first mom um, and Sydney, I know she followed the project like pretty much since the beginning. And I was like, dang, who's this girl who's following me where don't have much to say yet there's just like not that many people following me and after a while it's like well she obviously has to care about the oceans i started just kind of looking through her instagram and i saw that she had a little daughter and that they just seemed to be outside all the time and i was like well that's in the end that's how you teach your kids like you have to be outside you have to show your passion for something so that they're passionate about it like that's what my parents did in the end it's like they took me outside, so I started loving the outdoors. They showed me that you can't just throw your garbage somewhere <laughs> and be like, oh, whatever. And so I was like, I'm just going to reach out to her and see if she wants to talk about, like, a conservation standpoint from, like, a parenting side. And she was, she was like, all about it. She's like, yeah, sure. And then I realized that she actually had a degree in it, that she worked at an aquarium. And I was like, it's so crazy to see, like, how... A lot of times that like you don't you don't have to have a degree first of all in any in anything really or in conservation or science and be like a badass in being a conservationist like i would say there are so many people who probably don't have degrees who are so much more conscious about their choices and so much more um conservationist than myself i would say um so it was just really cool like reaching out to those two moms um, and then Kaylee, like she didn't have a degree, but she did the same thing. Like she just really loved the outdoors. She does a lot of really awesome things with her daughter, teaching her sustainability, teaching her responsibility. So I love seeing that. And I would love to kind of extend on the, the parenting aspect of it eventually, because I feel like it is so important. And in the end, like the younger we teach our kids, hopefully the better our future will be because like as Kaylee said like the plants we sow today like future generations will kind of reap the benefits of that and she's so right exactly I couldn't agree more and like yeah you have so many different people um on on the website as well you know from like people who are um, like uh, guides for cave tours and stuff like that and I mm -hmm. I love that as aspect of it as well like from like sort of like a tourism point of view and a revenue point of view like you need those things to work in tandem as well for the whole picture to come together for sure i just love like the variety that that, that is there and like one of the things that obviously i really love is that it's a platform for women um i mean there's so many difficulties that people face in the conservation world anyway and sexism's definitely a large part of that um i wondered if you had any words of words of wisdom um, for any young yeah. women experiencing that. I feel like that one is, it's so important and I don't ever want to scare somebody off from like pursuing a conservation career saying that. But unfortunately it is a big problem, especially a lot of times the places where there's conservation mostly needed are places where women don't have a lot of, where their voice usually isn't really heard or not really appreciated. Um, so I feel like it's really difficult going to a place where the culture, the religion is so different. And you as a woman, like, especially if you come from a Western world where you're more used to having a voice, where you're more used to speaking up. Um, I feel like sometimes it's difficult finding your place. And I feel like I for sure felt that way in the Maldives as well. Like when I went to the Maldives, it's, in, it's a Muslim country. And the people there were so incredibly nice. Mm. But for sure... Um, as a woman, you're treated differently and definitely getting along with the boat captains, for example, that I had to work with every day. Like it really took some time to build a connection, to build a relationship with those people, but without um, making myself vulnerable to them in the end. Like you do have to put your foot down. I felt like that was really difficult for me at some point because I, I always wanted to be nice. I always wanted mm -hmm. to be friendly. I feel like you have to treat everybody the same way, no matter where they're from, what they do, what they look like. Um, but sometimes just because it's such a different culture, my friendliness was received in a very different way. And it was received in a, like I was coming on to them. Yeah. Exactly. So I feel like it just, it takes time. And the thing 
what I realized is the most important thing, and I guess it doesn't matter if you're female or if you're male, you've got to know your worth. Like, you have got to know what you are, first of all, capable of, what you can expect of yourself, what other people can expect of you, but you also have to be able to put your foot down and say, it's like, this is, I am not going to do this. Like, if this makes you uncomfortable, um, if this is something where you feel like I have, I am way too overqualified in the end. Like, why should I be doing this? Mm -hmm. I'm just going to give a personal example here. So when I was in the Maldives, I was hired as a marine biologist, and I was so looking forward to it. I was like, all right, I'm going to work for this resort. They really care about the environment. They want to um, rebuild the coral reefs there. So I was responsible for coral restoration and also taking people on snorkeling excursions, which is super common in the Maldives. So I feel like that's the the basic marine biologist in the Maldives. And when I got there, I kind of realized that the marine biologists were kind of used for pretty much anything that was needed. And I was like, that's okay. Like I'm, and you know, you're new, you're somewhere like you just started. You're like, all right, I'm not gonna speed up. I'm just gonna do my thing. And I really don't mind working hard. And I feel like when you start somewhere, you kind of have to pay your dues and that's totally fine. Um, but. I realized super quickly there was just mostly used for renting fins. I was just like standing in the shop all day renting fins. And I was like, okay, whatever. I could deal with that. I've worked in the outdoor industry for a long time, renting kayaks, renting bicycles. Um, but then it kind of turned into that they didn't have an animation team. So the marine biologists in the end had to do the animation every night. So that was from 10 to 12 or so 10 to midnight or 10 mm. to one o'clock in the morning every day after you already shift exhausting it was crazy and i feel like the animation part was really what broke me and would make me furious in the end because it was like we had to do quiz nights karaoke nights disco nights and it was basically so we were the ones having to go around talking to all the guests bringing them onto the stage if nobody wanted to sing we were the ones who had to do the karaoke I remember yeah, exactly. I remember one night nobody was on the dance floor and my boss was like go dance and I was like excuse me he's like well that's your job you have to dance and it's like I'm a marine biologist like I am like you're not my pimp I'm not I'm not your dancer it's like I felt for some reason I felt so violated mm -hmm. it's like I am not some girl that you can send on the dance floor like we're not at some club I'm not here as a dancer so I was getting but unfortunately like that's what we had to do so every every day there was like no day off night entertainment was every single night and I was getting so frustrated and just and I feel like at that point I didn't I mean I knew my own work but it was it didn't stand up for it it didn't put my foot down I just felt I was getting more and more frustrated I was more and more just like really dreading every night it's like my day shift was over and I was like oh, it's dinner time then I have to start work again and I just hated it and I was like, I went to school for 20 years. I went to school in the U.S., which is incredibly expensive. I spent thousands and thousands of dollars on education. And now I'm here and I have to stand in a short black dress for some guests mm -hmm. who are probably not even care. And I was like, at some point, I was like, all right, this is it. I'm quitting. And I was like, at first, I, I was kind of hesitant because I didn't want to be a quitter. And I was like, you're here as a marine biologist and it's going to look bad if you basically finish your one year contract six months early. And I was like, well, I'm not actually a marine biologist. Like the marine biology work I do is maybe 30, 40% of what I actually do. And I was like, this is it. So, and I'm super happy. Like, even though now I've been unemployed for six months because of Corona and everything that happened, I'm still super glad I in the end decided to quit. And I feel mm -hmm. like that's the biggest advice. It's like, don't stay in a situation that doesn't make you happy in the end, where you feel like you're not learning, where you feel like you're being taken advantage of. It's like being in a bad relationship where you know mm -hmm. it's not good, but you're staying in it for some reason. Yeah. Um, so know your worth and stand up for yourself. Yes, definitely. Get out of any toxic relationships. <laughs> yes, exactly. So this is relationship advice as well for everybody yeah. there. <laughs> yeah, and I love that, like, you sharing that story and you know other people on the siren project sharing other stories like that will give people that 
sort of sense of self-worth and self-esteem and make them sort of feel like, oh, okay, yes, I can do this. Other people have done this and it's okay for, for me to go and forge my own path as well. Um, and I, I have to say, I absolutely love the website. Like, I love the look of it. It's really lovely and wonderful. Um, yeah. And it has such a variety of resources on there as well, like not just the stories, which are obviously wonderful. Um, but yeah, I mean, did you, did you want to tell the listeners like a little bit about other links and resources you can find on on there yeah for sure and i'm always super grateful for people reaching out to me like if you have your own ngo if you're a photographer like if you reach out to me and you're like oh could you put my ngo like as a link on there or could you put my podcast on there like honestly i'm super happy um because of course like i'm trying to kind of put new stuff on there but I also don't know that many things. So it's always nice at like, getting some new ideas to just like add them there. Cause I want to have, yeah, I want to just have a variety not always have the same links up. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, in the end, what I have on there um, are basically the things that interest me, I guess, in the end. So I have some of the documentaries that I really enjoy. Um, I have ocean books on there that I really like. Also this worm, which was the book that made me become a marine biologist. So everybody go get it. Go buy it, yeah. <laughs> Exactly. Um, then I have podcasts. I've become a huge podcast fan just because there's such a variety. And I feel like through talking to people, you can already convey so much more than writing it down. It's like writing it. I mean, I love, I love written and I love editorial and I love journals and magazines and books. But I still think like when you talk to people, you can first of all convey emotions a little bit more. Mm-hmm, and I definitely. feel like you can just pack a lot more information into like a 30 minute podcast rather than like writing something down um that's why i love podcasts there there's so many ocean podcasts out there it is insane um and it's incredible like it's so fun so for sure check out the podcast section um and then what else there's for sure um job sites on there because i mean i've been geez if i would just put all the times together where I was looking for jobs. It's probably two years of just yeah. writing job applications and getting denied and denied and denied. Um, so those are there. There's some really awesome resources. Um, there's some, if you're looking for a PhD or just kind of like a, um, a master's or a bachelor's degree. So there's a little bit of school resources on there. So really try to, and of course there's some NGOs on there, which I think are doing incredible work. Um, but yeah, if anybody wants to be added on there, has some awesome ideas, let me know and I'll throw them on there for sure. Awesome. That's lovely. Yeah. So where do you, do you sort of, do you see the Siren Project as something that will always stay with you alongside whatever else you're doing? Um, yeah, what, what do you see for the future of the project? Yes, um, that's a great question because I feel like it is for sure, it's already evolved so much since I started so it. So quickly. Two and a half months. Yeah. Um, and I'm for sure, like, I'm looking forward to it evolving a lot more. And I would like it to be all about community in the end. Like, I really, this is for empowering people, for giving people a voice, like, for building community. So that's my major goal in the end. Um, so right now, I'm posting every day. So I feel like if I ever get a real job, I feel like I'm going to have to kind of slow that down a little bit. Mm-hmm. Um, but eventually, I would like to be here as a resource, possibly financially, like kind of be a go-between between finding funding somewhere and then passing that along to anybody out there, if it's NGOs or if it's artists who are looking for um, new funding to create some conservation art or scientists. Um, I also would like to, and this is way down the road, so I'm just like dreaming here. Um, eventually, I would like to collaborate with different people within the conservation community and maybe uh, like put actual workshops on. So this means that we maybe would have a workshop like in Europe where we invite like 10 or 20 people. Um, we all stay at a like Airbnb together. So we really so have like an artist breakout session, have like a scientist breakout session and then all come together and see how we can all make conservation more accessible, but also how we can just like get it out there and make everybody see what we've all been working on. Um, so I feel like that's my that's my goal eventually. To the ultimate dream. Get us all together so we can have like a huge brain project going on. And meet a real person because I love, I mean, I love online because it's so easy and we can all connect. 
but I do think if we can actually get in-person meet and greet, basically, I feel like we could accomplish so much. Definitely. I, I would be one person who would definitely be up for, <laughs> for joining I'll, in with that. I'll hit you up for sure. Awesome. <laughs> and talking about artists there as well, um, that sort of brings me nicely um, to talk about sort of your inspiration in the world of ocean conservation. Um, it was a question you asked me when I was writing for the Siren Project. Um, so I'm turning that around and asking you who your inspiration is. Oh, I feel like that is such, it's such a difficult one because there's, I mean, there's so many people who are so inspirational, like in their, in their own ways. Mm -hmm. And of course, in general, I guess like inspiring to where I got were my parents for sure. Like my dad's a forester, my mom's a teacher for special needs children. So I feel like they just had like a really important impact in shaping who I am. But I guess within the conservation world, it would be Christina Middemeyer. Like she is just amazing. Like I don't, I don't have words for what she is. Like she is an incredible conservationist. She's incredibly dedicated. She's so smart. She really, what she talks about, like she's so knowledgeable about everything. I love her approach of getting indigenous people involved in conservation and also mm. really standing up for indigenous people. So and I guess that comes from her heritage. Like she, she grew up being, um, I guess, within the indigenous field. And I feel like that's why she is so passionate. That's why she really understands the struggles mm -hmm. a lot of indigenous people are going through. And seeing the connection between nature um, and communities and local communities, I think is so beautiful. And the way she conveys that in her photography is just insane. Mm -hmm. So I feel like, yeah, she is a huge role model for sure. She's the one. <laughs> I'll pop her um, Instagram into the show notes so people can check her out if they if they're unsure of who it is, but I feel like most people probably will have seen her images before without even yeah. knowing that they have. Um, and I think her and her partner have just launched um, Sea Legacy, um, yeah. haven't they? Yeah. Which is, I'll put the website for that in the show notes as well, which is an awesome project that brings, you know, conservationist photographers, other professionals together um, to yeah. fight for the oceans. Um, so if people haven't heard of her, drop what you're doing right now. <laughs> Get on your phone and check out what she does because she is incredible. Yeah, it's at, she's at Mitty, isn't she? I think on Instagram. Yeah, yes. uh -huh. yeah, short, sweet, easy to find. Go. <laughs> exactly. Now. <laughs> no excuses. <laughs> exactly. Oh well, that's really nice to hear you talk so passionately about a the ocean and b your your project and see like all of the influences in the world that bring your passion to life. Um, I have two final questions that I would like to ask you, um, which are my silly ones that I like to ask everybody. <laughs> um, I love those. I'm looking forward to it. Awesome. Okay. So number one is if you could have any animal adaptation, what would it be and why? All right. I feel like I really, I thought about this for a long time, <laughs> but it's, I think it would be an octopus. They are just so cool i love how when i see an octopus out in the water i just like if i can if it just doesn't swim away it hides for me like i can watch it for hours and i feel like it's the coolest thing like you can either if you're in a situation that you don't want to be in you just kind of blend in with your surrounding and you're out of there or if it's something that you really want to do but you're not supposed to you just kind of put on your little invisibility cloak you could say and then you <laughs> get on in there so i feel like octopus are just amazing creatures so for They're sure crazy insane. have you seen them there was a video released recently um within the past few months of an octopus changing color as it was dreaming like what yeah 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 i'll have to find it and, and link link it to you because that's yeah, just really that. stunning <laughs> link it in the show notes everybody should see it yes good idea i will absolutely do that <laughs> Uh, and my final question, which also proves to be a difficult one, um, is who would play you in a movie of your life? Uh, that one is difficult. Um, so it's like, I guess, just to be like kind of embarrassing, I am all about romantic comedies or just like romantic dramas. Anything that's sappy, I'm all about it. Um, so I was, it's difficult 
And at first, I was like, oh, maybe Catherine Heidel. But then I was like, I'm not actually, I'm not a funny person myself. <laughs> it's too funny for myself. So I would actually go with Chalice Theron just because she is a badass actress. Mm-hmm. Um, she, I love that she's involved with the UN. The UN is like my, and I know there's a lot of problems within the UN, but the UN has always been like a little holy grail. And it's my dream one day to possibly work for the UN. Yes. And just because I do think they're big change makers, mm-hmm. even though there's a lot of bureaucracy going on within the institution. Um, but I like that she's involved in that. I love that she still is really adamant about um, children's rights in South mm-hmm. Africa, where she's from. She is, yeah, she is super smart. She does incredible movies. She is an incredible actress. So I'm just shooting for the stars. Go with Shalise Theron. Awesome. I'll contact her and see if she'd like to get involved. <laughs> I don't, it would, yeah, the Turn on the Light podcast version of events, that'd be... <laughs> yeah, awesome, what a cool, I mean, call them up, see if they're interested, maybe, I don't know, Hollywood will sponsor it. Yeah, yeah, I mean, people are doing some crazy lockdown things at the moment, so you never know. <laughs> That's true, you might make some money with that one. Yeah, that'd be nice. <laughs> oh, I think that just about wraps us up. Um, for today um, thank you so much for taking time out of your day um, to chat with me it's been wonderful listening to you I could listen to you go on about your stories and about the project for, for hours um, yeah so thank you very very much no thank you so much and thank you so much for your podcast it really is so beautiful oh. so nice to hear positive I love your little like starting statements like having a little positive notes in the beginning and what's going on in the conservation world so you're doing an incredible job uh thanks for what you're doing keep it up and who knows in the future we'll do our little workshop somewhere in europe yes absolutely some awesome conservation collaboration yes we will meet in the future (laughs) yes thank you so so much much. (laughs) oh Thank you so much for listening once again. I really hope you enjoyed the interview with Leonie. She's just wonderful and inspirational and clearly incredibly passionate. Um, I really encourage you to go and check out her work um, at The Siren Project on Instagram. Um, Check out the website, thesirenproject.com. And since recording the interview, she's actually now got um, a Twitter at Siren Project and on Facebook um, at The Siren Project as well. Um, So please do go and check all of those things out and give her massive support. And you will also see on there... Um, Molly Gray and Marin Tor, previous interviewees on the podcast, they have shared their story with that as well, which to me is just amazing to like see all these connections forming between all these networks. Um, so you know, between the Siren Project, between Lonely Conservationists as well, and and now between between Little Old Me at Turn on the Light, um, yeah, community networking those friendships essentially that you form because of a love for the natural world. It's just I love it. I love it. Um, yeah, and all you guys listening, you're you're part of that um, wonderful little world. Um, if you are listening on Apple Podcasts, um, then if you could please um, give a five star rating and review, that would be wonderful. Really helps to spread the word um, and to get the podcast up on on searches for for conservation nature podcasts when when people look it up. Um, as always, you can find me um, at Turn On The Light Pod. Um, on Instagram, sorry, turn on the light underscore pod um, on Instagram at Saving Species on Twitter. Um, and you can email me for whatever reason um, at turn on the light pod at gmail.com. Um, so thank you for listening once again. I hope you enjoyed the lovely sea otters and talking to Leonie. Um, and I will speak to you all again in a couple of weeks. Take care, stay safe, lots of love. Bye bye. And remember that hope can be found even in the darkest of times if only one remembers to turn on the light.